if you have your Bibles with you, we're going to be in 1 John. And we're actually in chapter 2. I get tired of hearing myself talking. I can't imagine you guys don't too. So, And uh, what's even worse is I, I feel like I say the same things over and over again. And so... You've seen this slide every week, uh, but it's, it's key to this letter because what John does is he, he unfolds each, each one of those one at a time, and then he's going to go back to them at different points in the, in the letter. And so we have walked through all four, and we come to a kind of a special place at the end of that, which is at the beginning of chapter 3. It's at the ending of chapter 2, the beginning of chapter 3. So he's went through all four of those. So those are four ingredients that are needed for fellowship. You have to have all four. And uh, they are applicable to you and me. They were applicable at the time and they apply to you and me right now in our current situation. And so what is the current situation of the church? What are we doing? You know, is our is our ambition to just live a healthy life, uh, to get the house we want or the car we want or the job or the money or make sure we've got a good retirement plan? I mean, what is it that we're actually here for? What are we doing? In reality, those are things we do while we're doing our main objective, our main job as believers. And so uh, our current situation is we are waiting for Jesus to come back. That's what we're doing. And so while we're waiting for Jesus to come back, we're supposed to remain in fellowship with God. How do you do that? You follow those four principles. And while you're in fellowship with God, you are also fulfilling the Great Commission. And so the Great Commission is to make disciples. And so you can't make disciples if you don't share your faith. And so we have a mission. This is what we're supposed to be thinking about. This is our worldview as Christians is to realize that what we're really doing right now is we're just waiting for Jesus to come back. And in the meantime, he wants us to be working and doing things, not where you work at and all that business. The job that you have, the job that God gave you, which is the Great Commission to make disciples, which involves sharing your faith in various ways and all of the all of the places that you find yourself. And that's one of the things we're studying on Wednesday night. And of course you can't do that with any effect at all, honestly, if you're not in fellowship. So all three of those key components come together. So this letter was written to these Christians in the first century, and it's just as true for us today. Now, last week we uh, had a passage that began with uh, verse 18. And it said, children, it is the last hour. Not it's going to be the last hour. The last hour is coming. It is the last hour. You know, as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. And so even now, many Antichrists have come. We know from this that it's the last hour. Now, last Sunday, whether I did a very good job at it or not, what I was trying to do was create the picture for us of what John means by the last hour. What was he talking about? And 
to do that, I looked at some ways that John has used this term, the hour. And so we went back to the Gospel of John. And in, in John chapter 12, he says that uh, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Uh, John chapter 12. And when he said that, he was saying that the hour has come, uh, that period where he's going to be crucified. And so the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And he said that as he was talking about how he was going to be arrested, put to death, buried, and rise again. So the hour in that respect was the crucifixion. Um, I showed you another place. Uh, it's actually in John chapter 5 and John chapter 6 where he talks about the coming resurrection as an hour. And he does it in a very similar way. If you look at this verse on the screen, you can say, you can see this as children, it is the last hour. That's present tense, current time. It is the last hour. And he says that, but also the Antichrist is coming. And so if you look at that verse carefully, you can see that he's talking about a current situation where you're at right now, but he's also pointing to something in the future that's part of it. And so in this verse, he's saying that in this hour that we're in right now, there are many antichrists, but included in this hour is a coming antichrist. Well, he does the exact same thing when he talks about the resurrection. I showed us that verse um, in John chapter 5, verse 25, where it says that an hour is coming. And so that's something that's in the future, but and is now here. So it's right now, but there's a fulfillment of it in, in some respect that's still future. An hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. And so you can see there a very similar situation where it's the hour was talking about the crucifixion. The hour is talking about the resurrection. Here in our passage this morning, the hour is talking about the coming Antichrist. So the hour of the resurrection spans the period of time when Jesus first spoke those words until now and even into the future. And here in our passage when John talks about the Antichrist, this spans a period of time that was, that was true when John wrote the letter until now and then into the future. And so during this period of time, we are supposed to be uh, confessing our sins, walking in the light, turning away from the world, and protecting pure, true doctrine. And we've been warned about worldliness in the process. Um, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. And we've been warned about doctrine being twisted and changed into false doctrine. You know, when we hear Christians using terms like karma or reading their horoscope or talking about their sign, then you can see how these doctrines of demons influence even believers. It works its way into our hearts. It works its way into our minds. But it's false doctrine. Um, you may believe a little bit about evolution, well, just remember, evolution, if you follow it through its course, it teaches that God does not exist. And so if you're a partial evolutionist in some respect, you can see that influence that this false doctrine has in your own life. And so Christians have been warned against worldliness, 
living for a system that's going to bring you personal happiness apart from God. And, and God ha and the, John has also warned us about false doctrine, protecting the purity of the gospel. And so this is a, our, our mission and our ambition. Now, again, uh, Antichrist is coming, but he is not who we are looking for, is he? And so this brings us to our text this morning. Uh, here it is on the screen. It begins in verse 28. And it goes just through the third verse of chapter 3. So let's read this together. So now little children remain in him, so that when he appears, we may have boldness and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know this as well. Everyone who does what is right has been born of him. Look at how great a love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God. And we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. And so at the climax of going through these four components, these four ingredients that comprise fellowship with God, he concludes with this statement here about the return of Christ. And so it's Jesus that we're actually waiting for, not the Antichrist. Now, in regards to the Antichrist, um, is Jesus going to come before he comes or is Jesus going to come after he comes? Well, that's uh, a matter of Bible prophecy, isn't it? And uh, in Bible prophecy, uh, Christians do not all agree. We all see these things a little differently. And uh, that should put you on notice just to know that there are other Christian men and women who are very sincere believers who see things differently. And so that should bring humility to the table. I know that uh, uh, there's really, I, I'd say there's three reasons why Christians <laughs> Christians disagree about Bible prophecy. Uh, the first one is just because of who, what kind of people we are by nature. Um, however you were uh, raised and taught, whatever you were taught, uh, you tend to protect that. So like when you're first introduced to some kind of a subject, you want to get a handle on it and grasp it. And so once you feel like you, you basically have an idea of how things are going to go, you guard that and you protect it. When other people introduce new ideas, it's natural to kind of tighten up and, and to you know, grasp and clench your fists, you know, and hold on to what you know. And so just by nature as human beings, uh, this is what we do. And so this feeds right into the second issue, which is that with Bible prophecy, it uh, is, is what God has done is he has given you so much information, but not all of it. And so you kind of have to read between the lines and you kind of have to make your own conclusions to a point on some things. And when you do that, you could call that an educated guess if you want, but you make safe conclusions about things 
And if you're not quite right in one respect or another or all of it, that's problematic because your next conclusion is going to be based upon top of that one. And you begin to build this apparatus in your mind about what things going to, how going to happen based upon our conclusions. And so this is why one believer will kind of see things this way and another will see them this way. Um, there is a truth right in there that really only God knows for sure. And the third reason I think uh, Christians have trouble with Bible prophecy is that the, the information is voluminous. It is, it's throughout the Bible, but it is in huge, gigantic pieces. And to try to master it is quite a chore. You can spend the rest of your life just trying to work with this one subject matter in the Bible. And so it becomes intimidating. And so a lot of Christians will just kind of uh, just fall back on what they heard the first time. And this is kind of the way, uh, the nature of this whole situation. And so what Christians do a lot of times when it comes to these things, and the reason I'm bringing this up is because we're talking about the return of Christ. And when you bring up the subject, immediately your mind begins to try to plug that into how you understand what's going to happen in the future. And so... Uh, So what I think happens is, is that what we do is we, we stay safe and we can rely on people like the pastor, uh, a book we read, we read the first third of the book, or uh, you know somebody who's a slick talker or whatever, just whatever you heard from your mom or your dad, and, and uh, this is what we do. But the book of Revelation, for example, has a special promise that promises a, a blessing just to you if you'll try to study it. So God wants us to try. He wants us to study and to try to understand. As a, as a pastor, as a teacher, I feel like it is my responsibility to try to navigate through these things. Um, but I do this with humility because, you know, as you study Bible prophecy, it's like there's one door that's opening and the more you study, it kind of opens up a little more and a little more, and it's confirming everything you thought. But at the same time that door is opening, if you're honest, there's another one opening that says, I don't know, I'm not so sure. And so just this is what happens with the Bible, and so you have to be very careful with Bible prophecy because it is something that's in the future. And it's easy to look back on things that have already happened. And that does help us to understand what's going to happen in the future. But again, there has to be humility. And so most Christians, what we need to do, you guys, is uh, let this boil down to the things that we know are true, for sure. And that is that it is an absolute fact that Jesus is coming back. And when he comes back, there is going to be a reckoning, a judgment, some people are going to be judged on the basis of their sins and they're going to be in a world of hurt. But other people like you and I are going to be judged based upon our works as believers. And so Jesus is coming back. There is a coming judgment. And so uh, in, the, in the letter of John, he doesn't take the time to spell it out a lot. But what he does do is in chapters 3, he lets us know that Jesus is coming back. And in chapter 4, he lets us know that there is a judgment. Now, uh, our passage of studying this morning is in, in verse 28, begins in verse 28. 
And what he does there is he tells us to remain in him so that we're not going to be ashamed when Jesus comes back. You see that? So now little children remain in him so that when he appears we may have boldness and not be ashamed before him at his coming. You know, uh, you talk about a rapture, a second coming, the tribulation. Are we going to be in the tribulation? We're going to get raptured out in the mid-tribulation. Is there no rapture? The rapture and the second coming is the same thing. Uh, there's a millennial kingdom. There's not a millennial kingdom. All these things. They're all very important. But John wants us to focus on how we're supposed to be acting and living while we're waiting, which is actually more important, isn't it, in that respect? This is why in verse 28, he's bringing up the fact that there can actually be an embarrassing situation when Jesus returns for believers. We don't want to be ashamed when Jesus comes back. And that's more important than having a really good chronology, isn't it? That's more important than being an expert on Bible prophecy in that respect, isn't it? In verse 28, John tells us to remain in him so that we will not be ashamed when he returns. And that word remain uh, is in the present tense. And so it is, it is something that is continuously happening. It's an ongoing continuous event. It's not a single one-time event. God wants, wants us to live our lives in fellowship. And then in verse 29, it says that if we know that He is righteous. And I talked a lot about last week about who Jesus actually is and why it's important for us to know who He is and who the person of Christ is. And this is what it's talking about. If you know who He is, that's what it means by if you know that He is righteous, if you actually comprehend who Jesus is. If you do, that means that you are born of Him. And to be born of Him is the way that we are brought into a, a great, a, a proper family relationship with God. And it's the only way we can actually truly abide in Him. So it all works together, doesn't it? It's uh, contemplating, uh, actually understanding who Jesus is is something that occurs when we are born again. And you have to be born again if you hope to remain in fellowship with God. And how do we do that? How do we, how do we not be ashamed? How do we remain in fellowship with God? How are we supposed to do that? Well, we've got the four pillars that we've been studying. Confession, obedience, godliness, and doctrine. In verse 28 here, it gives us a contrast, doesn't it? It gives us a contrast between being bold when He returns or being ashamed. Another word for boldness would be confidence. Having confidence when He returns instead of being ashamed. What we usually think of when we think about being ashamed is that you know, Jesus comes back right in the middle of us doing something wrong. We're right in the middle of doing something we shouldn't be doing, and that's when He comes back. And that would be bad, right? Nobody wants that. 
But the idea here is that Jesus comes back, and when he comes back, he finds us being faithful rather than being lazy or uh, uh, distracted or backslidden. The idea is that when Jesus returns, he finds us being faithful servants, that we are, in the, we are actively serving him. We are growing. That's the key. You know, if you are worried that Jesus is going to come back and find out that you're a sinner saved by grace, you know, that's, that's who we are. We are sinners saved by grace. God doesn't expect us to be perfect. He knows we're not. That's what this whole letter is about. You know, God wants us to walk in the light. And when we don't, when we mess up, we ask for forgiveness and we confess our sins and then we move forward. And so, uh, but the idea here is that Jesus wants us to be actively serving actively growing we're in the game we're not sitting on the bench or we're we called in sick that day of the game we're actually playing the game we're serving and working that's the idea of not being ashamed now uh, sin in our life can be very much like weeds that want to wrap around our legs and eventually pull us down And we can beat ourselves up, you know, when we're sinning. And we're, not mess- we're messing up all the time. And you can really beat yourself up. But a growing Christian knows better. A, going- a growing Christian knows that you're going to sin, you're going to mess up, but you're not going to let that characterize you for the rest of your life. You're going to confess your sins and move forward. You're going to keep going. You're going to stay in the fight. And you're going to keep trying to do, put one step forward in front of the other. And so Christians are on the move. And we want to remain in fellowship. And that means that when Jesus comes back, we can have confidence when He returns. Um, if He came back right now, you know, this would be great because we're in church and we've got our clothes on, our nice clothes on or whatever. But uh, the idea is that we just... Your life is characterized by a believer who is, who is serving Him and working and growing. When Jesus comes back, all believers are going to be accepted, but some will be ashamed. And we want to remember what John has been warning us about. He's warned us about worldliness and He's warned us about false doctrine. In regards to worldliness, the, the world is passing away. It's, it's, and the lust thereof, it's, it's passing away. All the things that seem so important to us right now won't be. And in regards to the world, of course, we're talking about that, that system that our, our sin nature just naturally plugs into uh, where we find fulfillment and happiness in life without God. You know, And so uh, uh, it's hard to imagine uh, something that we can't see or have never experienced, you know, to imagine that someday we're going to be in a completely different environment where all of this isn't really going to matter. You know, um, think about how you, you see somebody playing a video game and they're so engrossed in it that they've completely forgotten about all of their surroundings 
And you can get so engrossed in the video game that all of a sudden that's reality and you don't even think about anything else going on. But the truth is, is you're still sitting in, on your couch. You know, you're still, you're, you're all tied up in something that's not even real. And uh, think about kids in junior high school. Young people in junior high, young people in high, in, that even in high school, where that uh, that that in, that little universe is everything, and that little microcosm is the entire universe. And then you graduate, and it's suddenly it's gone. All of the things that were so important, all of the people who were popular, and all of the, the clothes you had. All that just vanishes almost in an instant. And seniors, you know, they're starting like, whoa. You know, that's why when I see somebody that's really an older senior adult and they're just, they're, their mouth's filthy and their thoughts are filthy and they're not living for God, I'm just like, you know, you're going to be dying pretty soon. And so that senior in high school, you know, is starting to get that reality is starting to dawn on them. And, and James talks about how, you know, uh, like your life is like a vapor. It's here for just a moment, then it's, it's gone. And so uh, John is wanting us to remember that the, the temptations to invest in this worldly system for happiness is a fool's game because it's not going to last. This is something that believers have been warned about, to be godly rather than worldly. And then the other thing was false doctrine. And, you know, we're wanting to, all of us want to strive to be better than we are. We all want to continue to try to be better people. Nicer and better, and let's not make that mistake again. I lost my temper, I won't do that again, you know. And, you know you're always trying to move forward. And if you do that in a worldly way, then what you'll do is you'll go down a, a religious path, or you'll invest all of your energies into yourself. And that is a doctrine that is fed by demons. It doesn't mean that just because you're doing it, some demon's whispering in your ear, but it's, it's like they introduce things that they know are going to work. And they've churned them out. So you can, you can follow, I haven't done this, but you can follow some of the things that were being taught here in the first century and how they're being manifested right now in 2020. You know, right now, in different parts of the world and in different places in the city, right now, those same false doctrines are still present today. So, uh, what John wants us to do is to remain faithful to the things that we received in the beginning. And so this brings us to verse 1 where he says, uh, Behold, or look at how great a love the Father has look at how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God. And such we are. The, my, my translation says, look at how great. I think the King James says it the best because it says, behold. And the idea is, is that it's, it's, uh, it's John's wanting us to, to stop and to actually contemplate, to have some, discern, some valuable discernment about what it is that God has actually done for us and about what our future is like. We have a very bright future ahead. And so he's asking us to stop and actually think about this. 
Um, I think that if we could truly appreciate what's going to happen, and I try to think of some movies that we all know, uh, just so you can kind of see that thing as, you know, like a, I remember when I was a little bitty, a little boy, the Close Encounters of the Third Kind movie, and, and you go, I went and saw it at the theater, and, you know, it was just these enormous spaceships, and and everybody's eyes were open and their mouths were open and nobody was saying a word and everybody was just in awe looking at these spaceships you know I think if we could truly appreciate what it is that's getting ready to happen to us that's how we would be it's that it's that paleontologist on Jurassic Park who saw a live dinosaur for the first time before the the dinosaurs were trying to eat them but when he first saw them it was amazing, speechless. So John is asking us, we, it doesn't do us uh, justice when we try to read this. What it is he's trying to see, he's, he's trying to say, wait, you guys, it's like a command. He's like, behold, just think about what God has done for us. And the world doesn't know us because it didn't know him. And then in verse 2 he says, Right now, we are God's children, but what we're going to be has not yet been revealed. And so, you know right now that you're a believer, but something's going to happen later. And you're going to be changed. You're going to get a new name. You're going to get a new body. Dear friends, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when He appears... We will be like Him because we will see Him as He is. Something incredible. What a long, incredible verse. Verse 2. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, it tells us that when Jesus comes back, He's going to be coming back in the air for us, the Christians the church. He's going to come back in the air. And when he comes back, he's going to bring all of those Christians who have fallen asleep before us. He's going to bring them with him. And so that means that Ruby Rose and Sally and Billy Meeker are going to be with him. Then it goes on to say <clears throat> that the dead in Christ will rise first. So Billy's body is going to rise up out of the grave and it's going to shoot up there and meet Jesus in the air. And there's going to be this uniting of his body from the grave with his spirit up there. And it all happens at once. And so God has really slowed this down so we can see it play by play what's happening. Because it's going to happen like that. But He's going to get his new body right then and there. It says the dead in Christ will be raised first and then we who are alive will join them together in the air. And so if you're alive when Jesus comes back, you're just going to shoot up there. And if you've already passed away or someone you love that's a believer, their body's going to rise before you. And we're going to meet Jesus in the air. And you're going to get this new body, this new glorified body 
the kind of body that Jesus had. When I was younger, we had rapture practice. And I won't do that to y'all, but uh, I'll take my glasses off for this. This is rapture practice. One, two, three, go. One, two, three. <laughs> All right, I wasn't going to do that, but rapture practice. So uh, here, here's a verse where Paul gives us more detail about, about this, uh, this new body we're going to have. Um, in the, the reference or the context here is he's talking about people who are enemies of the cross. Here in Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, uh, he's talking about people who are enemies of the cross. He says that their end is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is their shame. They are focused on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of His glorious body. A body like Jesus has. I'm sure all of us can agree that getting a new body sounds pretty good, especially one without sin. And then in closing, in verse 3, he says, And everyone who has this hope in Him, and everyone who has this hope fixed upon Him, purifies himself just as he is pure. So there's a purification that occurs by having this hope. I believe hope was the first uh, advent, is the hope. Of, uh, it's our anticipation, what something, uh, hope that does not mean we hope it happens. Hope means expectant anticipation. I expect Jesus to come back. I really do. And I expect to be changed when I see him. I do expect that. And that is my, that is our blessed hope. And so, uh, in closing words, I would remind us that there is, and I have, I've got all the verses here and I wanted to talk about it, but we're not going to, uh, but there are so many things that, uh, so many ways that we benefit from living faithfully for God. Um, remaining in fellowship, remaining in Him, and having it in our hearts and minds, what it is we're, as Christians, we're supposed to be, you know, waiting on Jesus to come back. That's really our main motivation because He could come back at any minute. And in the meantime, I'm going to be working for Him. I'm going to be serving Him. I'm going to be fulfilling the Great Commission. I'm going to be looking for opportunities to make disciples. And I'm going to share my faith when I get the opportunity rather than not doing it. I'm looking for those opportunities. And I'm not any good if I'm not in fellowship. So this is the, the purification that he's talking about here. Having this purification. And so there is all kinds of rewards waiting for us in heaven for being faithful. If we'll actually be faithful to him, it's going to really pay off. We're going to be rewarded. And it's going to be something wonderful. Um, as a matter of fact, there's actually a crown, a special crown given for someone who is anticipating and waiting for Jesus' return. We find that in 2 Timothy verse, chapter 4, verse 8. And so, uh, in comparison, uh, a life lived that bears the fruit of the Spirit is so much better and so superior to a life that is spent feeding the deeds of the flesh. Let's pray.